you remember that from, from last week, correct? And what's interesting is, if you look at the end of Revelation chapter 4, do you remember one of the main things that it was focusing on? It said that God was worthy to receive glory and honor and power because of what? Because He created all things, and by His will, all things existed and were created. So, as the vision in Revelation chapter 4 ends, it focuses on creation. And what's interesting is, in many ways, the vision of Revelation chapter 5, its focus becomes on recreation, new creation, and redemption. And it's basically getting us to ask this question of what the fate of the world would be if there was no Savior. What humanity's fate would be if there was no Savior. And uh, it, as I was studying it, it kind of reminded me, I don't know if y'all have seen, uh, around Christmas time they show a bunch of the old classic Christmas movies. Uh, have y'all seen the one, The Year Without a Santa Claus? Oh, it's an old, I mean, it's from like this, I was going to say it's an old one, but then I was going to say a year. I don't want anyone to think I'm being offensive by that year. But it was made in the 20th century. So it was, you know, it's back there. I was born in the 20th century, so I'm not saying anything, but like 1960s is one of those uh, stop motion like claymation type pictures, but basically the premise of the movie was Santa Claus is sick and he doesn't know if he's going to be able to do what he has to do. He sees his doctor and his doctor basically says, well, listen, no one even believes in Santa Claus anyways, so you need to just take the year off, have yourself a holiday, and don't go deliver presents. So that's the plan. And basically some elves are trying to get him to do you know, go deliver presents and everything. But what's interesting is at one point, a little girl writes a letter to Santa, and it's got a picture of her on the front, colored in crayon, and she's crying. And it says, I'll have a blue Christmas without you. <laughs> and, of course, she starts singing the famous song, I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And it's supposed to pull on your heartstrings and everything. And it's forcing you, or forcing Santa at least, to consider how people feel about him being absent, what his, the lack of his presence would mean come Christmas time. And it's, the whole point was to say, well, what would Christmas be without Santa Claus? And Revelation 5 is asking us, well, what would the world be without a Savior? What would humanity be without Jesus? How sad would this world be? How miserable would we be? How hopeless and depressed would we be without Jesus? What would our fate be? I mean, if we didn't have Jesus, we'd be left in our sin, correct? We'd be destined to pay the price for our own sin. We would be forced to stand before God on Judgment Day without a mediator, with no protection whatsoever. We would literally have to stand before Him, and we would have to endure His wrath. And it would be a just punishment, would it not? If there was no one to pay the price for our sin. And so if we did not have Jesus, sorrow would be endless. And so as we read this section in, in Revelation 5, it points the point is to show us that we need Jesus, but it also shows us how Jesus actually wins the victory for us. And so you look at verse 1 with me. The Bible says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, we see a number of different scrolls all throughout Scripture and especially ones in relation to apocalyptic literature and things like that. Oh, we found the microphone. Sweet. 
So one of the first ones is in Ezekiel. So if you want to write down the reference, it's Ezekiel chapter 2. And I believe it's verses 9 through 10. Yes, Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. God hands Ezekiel a scroll, and it has writing on uh, both sides of the scroll. And what's interesting is in the beginning of chapter 3 of Ezekiel, he says, eat this scroll. And he says it tasted like honey. And there's a whole other message there, but we're not going to get into that tonight. But there's another one that we read about. It's, it's not so much a scroll as it is a book, and it relates to this. And that's in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. And that book, that, that book that Daniel had, it was, had writing all over it. And the Lord tells Daniel to shut the book and seal it up until when? Until the end. That's right, until the end. And so this scroll here that we read about in Revelation 5, it might be an allusion to the sealed book of Daniel, where God said to seal up this book until the end. And so you get the sense that, well, maybe this is the end, if we're finally going to have the, the unsealing of this book. And, and what is in the scroll? It's God's entire plan of redemption. It is God's entire plan of redemption, and the fact that it has writing all over it is an indication of the thoroughness of God's plan, that not a single detail has been left out of this plan. It is a comprehensive plan of redemption, and so redemption didn't just happen by accident, in other words. Uh, God didn't just happen to look out at Adam and Eve and say, oh no, they sinned, what am I going to do now? And he didn't just continue to watch mankind fall deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and then say, what am I going to do about this big problem? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, before God created anything, he had planned redemption out. And you have this sealed scroll with writing all around it, which is meant to, to say that this plan is comprehensive and thorough and every detail is, is written down. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And here's the problem. We read about the problem in verses 2 through 4. This is what it says. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so the, the vision slowly gets to the reality of the situation, of this, this bad situation that John is beholding, where he says no one is able to open the scroll, and the reason they're not able to open the scroll is because no one is found to be worthy to open the scroll. It's not, when, when you're thinking about this scroll, don't think about if you got some paper and you just kind of put some tape over it to seal it up. Because remember, we are reading apocalyptic literature here, so it's not that simple. Because what we're going to see in the, the next few chapters of Revelation are the actual unsealing, the pulling back of those seals. And each one, it's not just a little tape keeping the scroll down. Each one has to do with events that are going to take place in human history. So it's not, why can no one come and just pull the tape back on this scroll? Why can't someone do it? Why would you have to be worthy to do that? It's because the events that are going to take place require a certain person to oversee those events. 
When you begin to see the war that's going to come and all that's going to take place with the horsemen that we're going to read about in Revelation 6 and all these things to follow, you have to have a certain person who is going to be able to oversee all the events that are going to come with the unsealing of this scroll. And they said, no one is found to be worthy to do that. There's no one in heaven, meaning there's no angelic being or cherubim or seraphim or anything like that who can do it. There's certainly no one on earth. That's us. (laughs) We're not worthy to do it. There's no one under the earth, he says. No one in the realm of the dead who is able to come and open this scroll. And, And notice what the Bible says. John's not just upset about this. It says that he began to weep loudly. And what's interesting about that phrase, weep loudly, uh, in the Greek, it's, it's typically only used to describe people who are mourning the loss of a loved one. So if you can think about that, and I mean, many of us have lost loved ones. I mean, I can think of some in our, our church recently. If you think about the sorrow and the agony and the heartbreak that comes with losing a spouse or losing a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, and the pain and the agony that comes out there and, and how much wailing and weeping there is, that's the phrase that's used in the Greek here to describe how John reacts when he realizes there is no one who is worthy to open this scroll. Now, now here's my question to you. Why is it such a big deal? See, we, we don't want to read, read through Scripture too quickly and just go by this and go, okay, well, John was upset. No one's found to open the scroll. We all know Jesus is going to come and do it. The, the question I want you to think about, would you have cried? Would you have mourned? Would you be weeping? Do you understand why it's so significant that this, or, or crucial that this scroll be opened? What, what's the big deal behind it? Why must this scroll be opened, and why is John so upset that no one is found worthy to open the scroll? You think John knows what's in it? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah, that's, I mean, a different way of saying the same thing, basically, is, is Gene's on the right track there, where John understands that in order to move forward with redemptive history, certain things have to happen. And the things that have to happen are contained in the scroll, and the scroll is never going to be unsealed unless someone's found to be worthy to open that scroll and open those seals. And if those things don't happen, then God's plan doesn't move forward. So Jesus, at this point, he's already died on the cross, right? Sins are paid for. Praise God. He's already resurrected. He's ascended. Praise God for that. The problem is salvation doesn't end there. And if the scroll remained closed, then we would all die, and the plan doesn't move forward. There is no eternal rest for the saints at that point. There is no final judgment at that point. There is no righting the wrongs of the earth at that point. There is no sending people to their eternal punishment. There is no welcoming people into glory. There is no new heavens and new earth resetting the earth and the world to the way that God intended in the first place. You are stuck in essential limbo in this situation where nothing moves forward ever because the plan can't move forward because it's written in the scroll. And the scroll has to be opened. That's why John is weeping loud, because he realizes every single Christian, even though our sins are paid for, our eternities are in the balance, because the things that must take place, which God said earlier in Revelation, the things that must take place are written in the scroll, and no one is found worthy to open the scroll. We're all in a world of trouble if that scroll is not opened. And so John is longing for the scroll to be opened, and he is in despair at the fact that no one is found worthy. Now I want you to notice what happens next in verses 5-7. through seven. We'll have to do this part quickly or at least pick up next week. But the Bible says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though... It had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, as you can see here, there are a couple of of titles used for Jesus to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And the, the first one that you see here is that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this is a messianic reference. Does anybody know where it comes from? With this reference by with his reference by If you had said Genesis, I would have given you the props, but uh, nine through ten. After our two-year study in Genesis, Michael, of course, knew that. Of course. So Genesis 49, 9-10, this is uh, the blessing upon the sons of Jacob. And the Bible says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And the Bible is saying here that Jesus is that lion of the tribe of Judah, which means that he alone has the right 
to rule and reign over God's kingdom. He has the dominion because the Bible says here, the scepter shall never depart from him. And so this is a way of showing Jesus is worthy because he is descended from the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy because he alone has the right to rule and reign over God's kingdom. But then you get a second title, which is the root of David. What does that mean? The root of David. Well, it's a a fulfillment of God's promise to David that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God specifically promised David that that he was going to have an heir, and that that heir would be the king over a kingdom that would be eternal. That this king would sit on the throne of that kingdom forever and ever and ever, and he would never be dethroned, and the kingdom would go on forever. This type of language is also used in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So that's Isaiah 11, 1. And then you go down in Isaiah eleven ten, and this is what the Bible says there. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so what's interesting too, if you read Isaiah chapter 11 and read the whole chapter, it actually speaks of the new creation that this root of Jesse is going to bring about. And so this is the Bible saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of that as well because Jesse obviously fathered David and Jesus is descended from David. And so he is the root of David. So the Bible is saying here Jesus is worthy because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has the right to rule and reign over God's kingdom. But he's also worthy because as the root of David, he is going to be the one who brings about God's new creation. It's not enough for him to just be king. He is going to be the one who is bringing salvation to the people of God and new creation for the people of God, which we're ultimately going to see at the end of Revelation. And now here's the really interesting thing. You might have noticed it before, but I want you to notice again what the, one of the 24 elders says to John in verse 5. So John's crying, and one of the 24 elders comes to him and he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So, behold. Someone's here. (laughs) Hey, you're crying because no one's worthy. But behold, it's a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. And he is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But what's interesting about that? That's right. That's right. So originally I was titling this, this message, Hearing a Lion and Seeing a Lamb. Because in verse 5, he hears about this lion, and so he turns around, and what's he looking for? A lion. But what does he see when he turns around? In verse 6, he sees a lamb standing as though it's been slain. 
I mean, it's like pulling the wool over your eyes there, right? The elder says, hey, no need to cry. Behold, a lion. And John turns around and he says, it's a lamb. And there's nothing really impressive about this lamb, is there? It's a lamb that has clearly been slain, and yet it's standing. And and it's important to note there, too, when the Bible says, as though it had been slain, it's not saying that Jesus merely had the appearance of one who had been slain, but wasn't actually slain. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the impressive thing is this lamb has clearly been slain. It's been slaughtered, and yet somehow this lamb is standing. And and so it's actually a a reference to Jesus' resurrection. The fact that he is standing tall, even though he has clearly been slain and slaughtered. It's a reference to his, his resurrection. He is our Passover lamb who was slain for our sins, but he rose from the grave by the power of God, and he defeated sin, death, and Satan, and that is how he won the victory there. So, so that's what the important thing to note here and understand is that the lion actually conquers as a lamb. Not a lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he doesn't conquer as a lion. I mean, that's what people wanted him to do all throughout his ministry, right? Just do away with Rome. Just go and be our king. You can lead us. You can deliver us. And yet, Jesus did not deliver people through destruction and through conquest and things like that. He delivered through death. By sacrificing himself, by laying himself down as a substitute for us. And so, the triumph comes through death, not destruction. And the lamb that, that John sees here is not like any lamb you've ever seen, is it? Not only is it clearly slaughtered and yet standing, this lamb, as it appears here, has seven horns. What's that about? Seven horns. using that reference Bible again. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, so a horn would symbolize strength or power. And seven, this one's the easy part. Perfect. Yeah, that's right. Seven symbolizes perfection. And so the, the interesting thing about the fact that you have this slain lamb that has seven horns is it's the Bible's apocalyptic way of saying, even though this lamb has been slain, He is alive and he has perfect and complete power and strength. No one took his life from him, in other words. The one who possesses perfect power and strength laid down his life as a sacrifice. And not only does he have seven horns, but we also see seven eyes, right? So seven horns and seven eyes. This one's real easy. What are the eyes? Yeah, that's a good thought, and that actually could be part of it for sure. What else? Keep reading, brothers. That's right. There you go. So the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Now, this one should be an easy one for everybody who's been with us from the get-go. In Revelation, what does the Bible mean when it says the seven spirits of God? Yes, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, right? So when the Bible says seven spirits of God, it's referring to the fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so notice this, when you have a risen lamb, one who is standing yet though slain, 
you have the seven spirits of God going out to all the earth or the fullness, the presence of the Holy Spirit going out into all the earth. And that's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen, right? In, in John 16, 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, the Bible says, But you will receive, spirit, or receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And so the, the Holy Spirit has gone out into all the world only because the Lamb was slain and resurrected and ascended and is now standing in heaven victorious with all power. And so the Holy Spirit goes into all the earth. And so we see this lamb go and, and look at just the authority that the lamb has. You and I cannot do this. Please understand that. He walks right up to the throne of God, to the Father Himself, and grabs the scroll out of the right hand of God. Who else in all of creation could do something like that? The Bible says we can't even look at God and live, let alone approach Him and live. And yet this lamb who was slain walks right up and grabs the scroll. It proves that he is worthy. Only he can take the scroll and open its seals. And only he can begin to put the Father's plan into motion and usher all things toward eternity. And so there's a lot more we can say. A lot more we'll get into next week. But I just a few implications of this, just very quickly, is that number one, we're utterly helpless without a Savior. Are we not? If we did not have Jesus, not only are we dead in our sins, doomed to eternal wrath and punishment. But if we did not have Jesus to even open the scroll, God's plan could not move forward. He is necessary for the continuation of God's plan and the restoration of all things. And so without a Savior, we are hopeless. The other thing I want you to remember about this passage is that God is not passively sitting on His throne uninvolved in human affairs. When we're tempted to look at our world and say everything's out of control, where is God in all this? Why isn't God doing anything? You need to remember, He's got a scroll that's got writing on all sides of it. He has not overlooked even one detail. The entire unfolding of redemptive history and everything that's going to take place in human history is written in that scroll, and God is making sure that all things happen according to His will. His plan will be done. And so He's not just sitting up there passively watching our world go by. The other thing to remember is that Jesus alone is worthy. You and I, we're not worthy to open that scroll. You and I are not even worthy to redeem ourselves or to save ourselves. No amount of walking the straight and narrow and, and, and just trying to live a good life, no amount of that is going to be worthy. Lord, are we recording? Are we doing anything? Oh, we are recording. I'll be careful what I say. I was going to reference an event that happened today. But I've talked with people at other points in time and throughout my life who, have, who are operating under the mindset that to be a Christian means that I am responsible for my destiny. That I profess faith in Jesus, and as long as I can walk the straight and narrow and just do everything right and according to the book, then I can make sure that I'm saved. Why? Because I'm doing it. I'm in control of it. And the Bible is saying here, you're not. You're not good enough. 
You could try to live the best life you possibly could, and it would still fall short. You could try to live perfectly from here on out. That doesn't excuse everything you've already done. You mess up one time, and the Bible says you have transgressed the entire law. You are not worthy to save yourself. You cannot do it. You cannot live that life of perfect righteousness. You cannot atone for your own sins. See Psalm 49 for that answer. No man can offer his life for the redemption of another man because their life is too costly. We can't do it. We are stuck in John's situation where we say, who can come and do this for us? And we see a conquering lion who looks like a slain lamb. Jesus alone is worthy, and we need to remember that. All right, Michael Stevenson, you get the word of wisdom tonight since we went over.